0: to that passage. I think it was page 226. If you need a Bible, there's a black covered book. There's a burgundy and black covered book. And uh, I think I'm hearing a little bit of ringing on this price. I don't know if you guys are hearing that out there or not, but uh, if not, then you're fine. Um, page 226. I think in that black covered, there's a black and burgundy colored book and the black one is the Bible. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to have that copy. We uh, want everyone to have a copy of the scriptures. If you have a friend that doesn't have a copy and they need one, take that and give it to them. Okay, we can we can replace it easily. So we have this. Uh, we're in we're in the gospel. If you're uh, haven't been here in a while, or you're catching up or listening uh, listening to this online. We're in the gospel of 1 Samuel. I say the gospel, uh, even though it's an Old Testament book, because all the, Jesus said that all the Bible is about Him, and so He's the good news. He is the gospel, and so we're looking at the gospel. Uh, this morning or we're continuing to look at the gospel and I don't know if you remember we looked at specifically this is uh, the gospel is presented through people so we're looking at stories we're looking at uh, people and and stories about people and so we have to be really careful though as I mentioned uh, about a month ago we have to be really careful is that when we when we uh, read through stories and stuff sometimes our default is we, the takeaway from the story is is just be better or just do better. And that's horrific. Well, that might be part of the equation, right? It has, to be, it has to be rooted in Christ. Christ is the one or the reason why we can do better. Christ is the reason we want to do better. Christ enables us to do better. So it can't just be uh, reformation, like external, trans- uh, external confirmation. It has to be and realize that there's internal transformation because of what Christ has done. And so we have to go back, everything points to Jesus, and so that's the gospel that we're looking at. Now last week, we looked at the influence that parents have over their children, and that's a reality, and it's a sobering reality, is it not? While there are other factors that are involved in raising children, I mean, children, as I said, children grow up and they make decisions that you don't raise them to make because they have their own wills right there's you can raise a child to 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 do do or be or whatever even do it the right way rooted in Christ and they're going to make decisions that you didn't raise them to make so they have their own wills but it is correct and it is understandable and it is reasonable for us to know that a parent influences how their children turn out, influences a child's heart. And that's a very sobering thing. Elkanah and Hannah influenced Samuel in one fashion, and Eli influenced Hophni and Phinehas in another fashion, and both kinds of influences had consequences, did they not? Now, as we read through this text as you, this morning, as we read through it together, and then probably on your own, I encourage you to continue to read through this, I would really encourage you to read through all of 1 Samuel multiple times throughout our thing, because I think the Holy Spirit will use that and just make the text even jump more off the page to you. And as, if you've done that, as you read through 1 Samuel, there's another type of influence that I want to look at here today out of this text. And I'm going to call this pastoral influence. Now, I'll tell you why here in just a minute, all right? This, there's another type of influence that we read here in conjunction with Eli, in conjunction with the culture, and we'll look at that. And that's just the influence of leadership in general, right? So, if you want to call this just influence part two, last week I called it parental influence or influence part one, however you want to label this. But specifically in context, the influence that we see here in this text is spiritual leadership, or influence that comes from leadership. And there are a variety of things, you know, in life that influence us spiritually, right? There's, there's what we call audio uh, sermons, audio recordings, what the young generation calls podcasts, same thing. Uh, there's video video podcasts, there's all sorts of different expressions of that. We've got books. We have influences, people that influence us and the like. And one of those people or one of those broad influences in our lives is spiritual leadership. We would call that today pastoral leadership or, as I defined in uh, leadership, influence. Because remember, and I, m- my brother and I had a really, you remember last week, we had a really good laugh about this. Because rem- remember when I did that? And, uh, he, and I, looked, I wanted to see if he was going to look. And sure enough, he, he bit. And so I got, to, I got to mess with him this week. And he said as soon as he looked up, he knew exactly what I was doing. And he could have kicked himself. And I said, well, let me do it for you. Um, but I got him. But we all have influence, don't we? You know, just like I looked up like that a couple times last week. And that subtle thing, that little bit of influence, caused some of you to look up as well. The point is, is we all, I think I've mentioned this to you before, why does a grown-up man talk like a baby sometimes? That's the influence of that little child in his life. That's why you see grandfathers and dads going goo-goo-ga-ga, too. Because even a baby has influence. Pastors have influences, have influence. And so what I look at, at this text is, is that after all, because everyone has influence, pastors have influence. And that's a sobering thing. But it's a real thing. Eli was a priest, and it's not the same thing as a pastor. Because the veil has been rent to right? And you don't, there's, there's not somebody that makes atonement on our behalf and a mediator and that sort of thing. We go directly to God. Our mediator is Jesus directly himself. We can go directly to God. And so there, pastors and priests are the same thing. But what I do is I see in here, I see in the life of Eli, who would be, in essence, and I'm making that, that um, correlation, he would be like their pastor. You see, Eli had influence too over people. And it's stated negatively in the text, as I'm sure you picked up in our reading. So I want to look at that pastoral influence today. You know, if you think about it, in the last, and it could be just because I, you know, I'm just middle-aged, and maybe some of you that are older have seen this more cyclically in life, but at least in my recollection, I don't know, maybe in the last 20 years, there's been a really heightened awareness um, and concern regarding pastoral influence. Influence, or I would, we could say pastoral leadership, and I think rightly so. There was a well known pastor and an author, I would never forget. I interned at a church, uh, it was a large church, it was a church about 1,200 in uh, the Chicago, Illinois area. And I remember one time I hopped in the uh, car with uh, Pastor Mike, who's one of my mentors, and uh, we, were, we were headed off to uh, a f- uh, one of the church family members' homes. And, um, and so we hopped in his car and we were going he said I want to show you something first and so he drove me through this what I thought was a college campus and so he's showing me these different things and he, he looks and he said you see that, that building right over there and I was like yeah it's really pretty from the outside he goes oh it's even more gorgeous on the inside he goes that's a chapel and that chapel is used just for weddings that's all it's used for and I went this is a church campus and he said yep yep it was a monstrosity. Well, in 2018, the well-known pastor of that ministry author from Illinois resigned over allegations of sexual misconduct. An independent review board found that they were not just allegations, but they were actually true. In 2014, and another well-known pastor and author was under investigation for abuse of power and for other conduct not in line with the qualifications of an elder found in 1 Timothy, Timothy, First, First Timothy and Titus. In the end, he ended up resigning, probably to save credibility to some degree, because he is trying to pastor again today. But the investigation did find credible evidence to support those allegations. The ripple effect was felt by many personally. I think the church attendance at that time in seven locations was nearly 14,000 people in the state of Washington. But it was viewed by countless thousands more. The correspondence that happened between the pastor, the lead pastor, and the elder team was made public in the aftermath. And even today, nearly seven years later, people are still talking about that issue that surfaced in 2014. Even this summer, starting in, I think it was June, a 10-episode podcast over, quote, the perils of power, conflict, and celebrity, Christian celebrity, discussed that situation that started in 2014. And as a matter of fact, this month, they concluded the last episode of that podcast of something that happened seven years ago. Mike Cosper who was the author of that 10-episode podcast, said this, quote, he said, but this is far from just a celebrity pastor problem. I know of at least a dozen more pastors, of small to mid-sized churches, who were removed from leadership. It seems, it seems like it's an epidemic. It does seem so. Matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, I had coffee with a pastor, and this pastor was uh, he was a retired pastor, but he, was, he, he attends a local congregation, and not in this area. He had flown into the area, and we got coffee, and we had a discussion. One of the things we discussed, w- discussed was he was part of a team who was investigating the accusations of that local lead church where he's, a, where he's a part of into the lead pastor of emotional abuse, An abuse of power. It's in a small, relatively unknown local church today. Charges that after the investigation, they found out to be true. It seems like it is an epidemic. You see, that church today is even just looking for a new pastor. My point is this. My point in this. Whether it's a large congregation or a lot of influence like Eli would have over a nation or a pastor would have over 14,000 or a pastor would have over 35,000 or a pastor would have over 100. Their influence matters. Leadership after all does lead and it matters how they lead. And so I want to look today at what I'm going to call, you could call it leadership's influence, which is really redundant in my mind, but I want to look at pastoral influence. And so to do that today, I want to look at three specific things, and it will be stated in the positive, but it's really exemplified in our text in a negative way. The very first thing that we see here is that leadership, godly leadership, good leadership, must obey God. Now, when we read through 1 Samuel and we've spent the last 4 weeks in 1 Samuel, you know, the problems that we read here really didn't start with Eli. Eli wasn't the one. He just he was guilty, but they didn't start with him. Turn with me if you would to uh, the time period right before Sam, 1 Samuel, and that's the book of Judges. I want you to see a text here in, in Judges. This text will not be on the screen, so you can listen as I read, or if you want to follow along, uh, Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, Judges chapter 2, read with me verses 1 through verse 4. The Bible says this, and now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Botcham, and the angel of the Lord said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. And then he says this, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these things to all the people of Israel, the people lifted their voices and they wept. What's going on? Well, there was this inter, there was this period between the patriarchs and the judges coming onto scene. And while this, this angel of the Lord comes, who, by the way, it is, it is I believe, a theophany, it is Christ that comes, the pre Christ, and he comes and he does not... What, what one specific person does he mention here? Does he address one specific person? He doesn't. He's addressing the nation as a whole. But there was leadership that did exist, and how do we know that? Because Exodus chapter 18... It says this, 1825 says, Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people. Some chiefs of a thousand of thousands, some of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. The point is the nation of Israel, while perhaps Moses was off the scene and Joshua was had just passed away, the nation of Israel was set up wisely to have leadership. And leadership existed in different various forms. And what happens here in these various forms, various forms is, the point is, is that while there is there is in this transition from patriarch, to, uh, there was leadership among the nation of, of Israel. They had leadership. And you know what this leadership was characterized by? Chapter 2, that we just read, verse number... or. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 2 says, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's that's pretty pointed, isn't it? Proverbs 29, 18 states, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I think that proves this case out. The context of that Proverbs is there, is is talking about spiritual leadership, and specifically the lack of, of spiritual leadership, the lack of the word of God and of hearing of the word of God which was leading to the spiritual death but you have not obeyed my voice this is exactly what we find here in the leadership of Israel now when we move through the rest of the book of Judges, if you were to, let me just give you kind of an oversight I like how Tim Mackey, the author of um, the Bible Project, kind of gives an oversight of the book of Judges. And this is what he says. He says, quote, there's 12 stories. There's six short ones and six long ones of Israel's judges that get progressively more violent and disturbing. Chapter 3, Ehud. He's the slick assassin who's good with a dagger. Chapter 4 through verse 5, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. A tent peg ends up getting hammered through one of, through someone's head. Need I say more? Chapters 6 through verse uh, chapters 6 through 9, Gideon and Abimelech, a coward who overcomes by faith, one who leads Israel into idolatry and starts an inter-tribal Israelite civil war. Chapters 10 through 12 is Jephthah, a hilltop thug who's so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he thinks that sacrificing his daughter will please God. And then you get to chapters 13 through 16, and there's Samson. He's a violent, sex-crazed maniac with absolutely no conflict resolution skills who dies in, a bloody and go- who dies in blood and, and glory, getting vengeance in his, on his own enemies. What we read here in the book of Judges, as we see that leadership that does not obey God, And while those people are guilty, and while those people are, excuse me, those people are uh, responsible for themselves, leaders lead, and they had influence over this nation. Second, when you read through many of these stories about these judges, you read about a general lack of trust in God. Secondly, leadership must trust God. Let me give you one example here. and you're gonna, Some of you are going to be like, what? This is what we read in Judges chapter 6, verses 14 through verse 18. Listen. And the Lord turned to Gideon. Here's Gideon. The mighty man Gideon, who we always hold up and think, you know, at least that's always I thought of, thought of him as a kid. And the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Gideon, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as if they were just one man. And he said to him, okay, Lord, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until until I come back to you and and bring out my present and set it before you. And the Lord, this angel, the Lord turned to him and said, I will stay until you return. So just to recap, the Midianites, God says to, to Gideon, look, go fight the Midianites, and he says, "I'm going to be with you, and you're going to conquer them as if, as if it was like a, you're just fighting one person, not a whole you know nation of people." And Gideon goes, "Whoa, oh, I, I'm weak." No, I'm going to be with you. Gideon goes, "Okay, okay, let me run back. I'm going to grab something, and I'll be right back." And Lord says, "Okay, I'll wait for you." So Gideon, he does come back, and what he does, he brings back a gift. He, bring, he, he brought some meat in a basket, and he brought broth in a pot, and he presents it to the Lord. And Gideon places the meat, This I love this, he places the meat on a rock, and then he pours the broth over it, so it's soaking wet, and what does the Lord do? He brings fire from the rock to consume the food, the offering. So in God's grace, what does God do here? He gives Gideon a sign. Here's the sign, Gideon. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Fire is going to come from the rock and it's going to consume a totally drenched piece of meat. It just doesn't happen that way. So here's your sign. Hmm, Here's your sign. (laughs) What does Gideon do? Gideon gets up. Straps on that armor and says, Let's go. No, he doesn't. What's Gideon do? Verse 36 and 37 says, Then God said to then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, that phrase just gets me every time. As you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece on the, of wool on the threshing floor. If there.'" is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Friends, listen. This is not included. This, this passage of Gideon is not included the scripture to be a model for us. God told Gideon what he was going to do and how he's going to accomplish it, and even gave him a sign. And God, what, what Gideon does here, what, what, what Gideon shows us in his leadership, you know what he does? Is he shows a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. Now, I understand he's human, just like me, just like you. I understand that. And I understand how it was a difficult situation, but he nonetheless shows us a lack of faith in God. Now, we, when we read this passage We we don't see how Gideon influences a nation. In other words, you're saying, well, leadership influences. So how did Gideon, did that, like, did everybody know about that? And then the whole nation started doing, like, oh, he didn't trust God. So we're, we don't read that in the text anywhere. But you know what I do know? This is what I do know. That his leadership has caused many a believer today to lay out a fleece. So don't tell me Gideon hasn't led people. Because he has led thousands of believers today to not trust God. Like, okay, God, you're sitting at a table somewhere. God, do you want me to go witness to that person over there? If so, if you really want me to do that, God, then have somebody walk by me right here in the heart of Columbus that's wearing, if they dare, a Michigan sweatshirt. And God, if that happens, then I'll know that it's your will that I go tell them about Jesus. Look, friend, we don't ever have to pray that. How do I know that? Because the Great Commission says, Go ye therefore and tell all people. And by the way, that's not a command there. It's actually more convicting than a command. It's a participle that literally says, Because you are going baptize and make disciples in other words God is already assuming that you are being a faithful witness because that's the example of Jesus and that's why he came so that we all people could be rescued there's a reason why football players put John three sixteen on those little black patches all the time because he loved the whole world so God already has told us to go God already assumes that we're telling people so we don't have to pray, let somebody, you know, if you really want me to do this, then have a purple truck with a dented yellow door and one flat tire drive by. Come on. Now, this could be said, of other. the point is, Gideon is not really a good example for us. God doesn't include this passage in here for us to lay out a fleece. Now, some of you might think, well, that, you know, that just completely burst my bubble. First of all, good, because I want you to walk by faith. But secondly, you may wonder, well, I've done that before, and God's answered my prayer. And I would say to you, he does that just like he did Gideon. And you know why he does that? Because he is gracious, and he is merciful, and even in our unbelief, he still sometimes does those things. But it doesn't mean it's an example for us. He said to Gideon, Go do go attack the Midianites. And Gideon even says, Well, God, you have said this, but do this wool thing, fleece thing, water thing for me, even though you're gonna attack them because you said so. That's not an example. So my point is really what that does is it elevates God's grace and mercy to us, is what that, that passage, that's the point of that passage. As we're supposed to see a God who, in spite of who, our lack of faith still answers still still is a gracious and merciful god but my friend the point of the text here uh, what I'm what I'm trying we have a we have a nation of leaders of judges of ones that are in charge of thousands and hundreds and fives that don't generally use their influence to a, to influence the nation for god Matter of fact, they affected the nation so much so that the last verse of Judges, and we looked at this, there's a verse in chapter 17 and then chapter 21, we looked at this last week. The last verse of Judges says what? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No wonder. Because there was a leadership that didn't obey God and didn't trust God. Now, it's within this context that we come to the end of the Judges' And we get into 1 Samuel, and we find Eli. Does the text get us, give us any indication of Eli's leadership, and can we learn something from it? And the answer is yes. Now, we mentioned some of these things last week as we looked at Eli as a dad, because remember, he had two boys, and there was parental influence. And so there are some overlap, and I'm not going to go over all of that. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. It's online. So there are some additional things that we can see in this. But I want to identify a few additional things as well. First of all, Eli, Eli was a leader who was controlled by the fear of man. And in this case, it happened to be his own sons. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 29, the passage that Glenn read for us this morning, it says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? And then in chapter 3, and verse 13, it says, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. And then listen to this. And he did not restrain them. Eli was more controlled by what people thought of him than he was by loving God, obeying God. He capitulated to the cult. He capitulated to man. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid of what his sons were going to think. Eli also was a leader who took advantage of his position. If you recall in chapter four, when Eli heard that the ark had been taken, remember? Remember what happened to Eli? He fell over and he broke his neck. And the text says he fell over because he was heavy. Now remember, in our vernacular, we would say what? He was overweight. And do you remember why he was overweight? Why he was heavy? Because he ate the best choices of meat for himself. When they should have been given to God. (laughs) In his position, you know what he thought? A lot of pastors are like this. He felt like he was untouchable. He was the man, and he could do whatever he wanted to do. He took advantage of his position. We would say he exploited his position of leadership over people, over things, over its context. You know, while he was worried a lot about what his boys thought about him, he wasn't worried a lick about what God thought about him. He just exploited his position. One more thing. Eli wasn't interested in ministry so much at all. There was an external piety with him, but there was not really much internal devotion. Now, you might miss this, but when I mention it, you'll pick up on it. Remember when Eli is introduced in this story? He's introduced in the story, and we start learning about his place in the story in chapter 1 and verse 9. And this is how we're introduced to him. It says, And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. You don't really think much about that. Well, when you read read the end of the story, this is what we read of Eli in chapter 4 and verse 18. Pick up on the repetition. And as soon as he mentioned the ark, this was the guy that came to him, remember, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken. Now, if you remember, I've taught us that when we read the scriptures and interpret the scriptures, sometimes there's literary clues that give us hints of things that the author wants us to pick up on. And one of those literary clues is bookends. How a story starts or a passage starts and how it ends. Because if it, re- if it repeats the same thing, then that's, a, that's intentional. It's trying to tell us something by saying it, by repeating it. And how we're introduced to Eli is he's sitting down on the seat. How where how Eli is phased out of the story is he's sitting down on his seat and falls over. Now some commentators and scholars make a big deal of this. I'm not going to put as much weight on it, but the word "seat" there is the word "throne," where we get the same word "throne." So there could be something to that. Eli thinks he's the king of the castle. He's untouchable. He's more worried about. His, I mean, Eli thinks he's the man, and so what is he? What? How do we see Eli often? He's sitting down. I believe what God's communicating to us here is that Eli really sat around a lot. Eli led from his seat. We see a man who's not intentionally ministering to people. You know, when we read of Samuel, right? How did we read? I think it was like four or five passages I read to you out loud last week. When we look at Samuel, what is he doing? And Samuel was ministering to the Lord. And Samuel was ministering to Eli. And Samuel was ministering, yada, 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 yada. But when we look at Eli, what's Eli doing? And Eli was sitting at his seat. And Eli was sitting at his seat. We don't see a leader who is intentionally ministering to people, who is deliberately calling people to a covenant relationship with God, or purposefully leading a nation to worship God. We see a man who has all the outward appearances of devotion to God, but internally he is antithetical to the things of God. He is internally dead or bankrupt. Here's what I see from the life and the leadership of Eli. Number three, leadership must be A model, a godly model of God. And Eli was not that. He was a poor leader who used his influence poorly. He clearly doesn't model God. And do you know what the result of that was? Because it has influence, does it not? you know what the result of that was? Chapter 3 and verse 1 says, And now the boy Samuel, here it is again, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Well, of course, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Of course, as Judges says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because there was nobody that was there that was being a good, godly leader to lead them to covenant faithfulness and love with God. Leadership must obey God must trust God, and must model God. That's what we ought to expect out of godly leadership. Now, what is the point of all of this? The point is, godly leadership is crucial, we would say today, we would say godly leadership is crucial in the body of Christ because leadership has influence. And so taken from the main ideas that you see there on the screen, I want to make some, maybe some more personal or some more pointed applications. You should expect, I should expect, that your leadership in your life is obedient and trusts and models God well. And those, though, are very broadly stated, aren't they? As they are here in the text. But if you think about it, if you think about those examples, so if I go back to those examples that I mentioned, whether it was the small church or whether it was that church that, uh, 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 from the mid, the, the Northwest that, that's the subject of, of even today's Christianity Today articles or whatever podcasts, if you look at those different things and all of those things that might have started out subtly, But those ministries and those men and their influence, their influence influenced those ministries negatively. And it doesn't matter which size church. What I see here and out of this text or the application for us is that godly leadership should be fit to lead, but also has to remain fit to lead. Just because someone is your pastor, someone is a pastor, someone is a deacon, someone is a a Bible teacher, of a variety of different ways that that can be expressed, and they're that, doesn't mean that they get to be that way forever just because they're in. They have to remain qualified, they have to remain fit. Eli, perhaps, at the beginning, maybe he was faithful. I mean, he was the high high priest, right? So so maybe at some point he was, but at some point he became unfit. It's not good enough to start out qualified. You don't get a, so if you, you start out qualified and everything's good, you don't get a free pass for the rest of your life. You have to be fit and remain fit for ministry, to be in leadership. Scriptures gives us the qualifications, For being a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, all the same overseer, bishop, all five of those words, the same things, referring to the same office. They're not suggestions because influence doesn't just happen once, and influence continues throughout a leader's leadership, which means godly leadership should welcome accountability. Now, when we look at these two boys, Hothna and Phinehas, they wanted nothing to do with accountability. Eli did come to them and it was too little too late. We talked about the parental influence of that last week. Eli goes to them and says, boys, shape up, and they wanted nothing to do with it. Why? I think partly because they saw what was modeled in their own father's life. There was no accountability. He thought he was untouchable. He exploited his position. Now, I want to say a few things about account- accountability here. First, this accountability it comes in the form. There's a good form of church polity, and that's a plurality of elders. There are some church, and the word polity is another word for the word governance. Okay, there are some churches where there's a pastor and everybody else. There's a pastor who calls all the shots. Matter of fact, in my in past in my Uh, rubbing shoulders with other pastors and ministries and polities and stuff. I've even had a pastor say to me one time, I'm the pastor, that's why. Say to me, I'm the pastor, that's why. Really. And so in a plurality of, you have four pastors at this church. Doc, David, Glenn, and myself. And while I might have a specific responsibility... That's different than those other three men. All four of us are your pastors. And guess what? When we have discussions, it's not not what I say goes. I can share with you. There have been times when I've had an idea about something and it hasn't been shared with everyone else. And guess what? We don't do what my idea is. Or we table it. And the other guys could say the same of themselves as well. They think something, but we don't do it. Or they think something we should go, but we don't. Why? Because there's, the Bible says that in a multitude of counselors, there's what? Safety. So a plurality of elders is a really good biblical prescription of how church leadership should be. And in that level, there's a level of accountability. Because I can tell you right now, if I start acting kind of out of turn, or if, I, if there's something off, beyond the obvious off stuff with me, okay, keep those comments to yourself. But if there's something off, there, there is going to be some, somebody's going to say something. One of those three men and that going to be like, whoa, breaks on here, dude, what's going on? And that's a good thing, folks. That's a really good thing. So I'm very, very thankful for even before I came. This has been the history of the church this has been a plurality of leadership. Hopefully, it's always been expressed that way as well. There's also a second layer of leader of accountability for leadership as well. It, there should be personal now. The, the second layer is is this everybody in this room? Do you know specifically if you're a covenant partner here at the church? So when you become, we call it membership. I call like to call it partnership. Membership is because sometimes when we think of members, we pay our thirty dollars Costco fee and then they owe me something. It's not the same way in a church where partners together, same vision. We all okay, so that's why I like to use the word partnership. If you're a covenant partner here at the church, we have a we have a partnership. We have a covenant that says we're going to do these things together by God's grace. And part of that covenant is is that we all check up on each other. We all are able to speak into each other's lives. Do you know that you have every right to speak into my life? And I welcome it, even if it's uncomfortable. And some of you have done that to me. And you know what? I might not appreciate it so much when it happens, but I love you for it. I'll never forget in my life, I got a phone call when I was pastoring in church in Virginia. One night, a guy named Andy calls me. And Andy called me and he says, Hey, you got a minute to talk? And I said, Sure. And he just said, He he was like, Matt, you said this and you did this and you acted like this. And he goes, You were wrong. Well, when he said that to me, do you know how I felt? I was like, I am so thankful that this is over the phone because you would be missing a tooth right now. (laughs) I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't honestly agree with him. So I listened, and I said at the end of it, after I calmed down, I said, thank you. And hung up the phone. I thought about it some more. I think even mentioned to Deanna about it. And he was right. He was right. And so I had to repent, and I went to him afterwards, and I, I, looked, I said, Andy, thank you for that. I love you for it. Thank you for it. He is one of the he. He was at that time in my life outside of my, outside of my wife, and family, and and Marietta, certain people. He was the only one that ever in my ever in sixteen years had the gall to come to me and say you were wrong. And you know what I think of Andy today? I think very highly of him. You see, I was accountable to the church as a whole, and he knew it. He understood the scriptures. You have every right to speak into my life. I have every right to speak into your life. And I know you're like, I wish you wouldn't. (laughs) Oh, yes, you do. You do. We need each other. And so there's a level of accountability there, is there not? And then specifically, you should expect and want the leadership of your church, this church, of any church, if God, for some reason, ends up, because of a job, let's say, moves you to Timbuktu, and you're going, or, you know, you're, you're getting out of school, and you're going to go be a doctor in, you know, Kenya or something, whatever God does, and you go and you find a local church, you should expect this of any of the leadership that's ever in your life. But they need to be accountable with specific other people. You know, one of the reasons why we see messes like we see here in 1 Samuel, why we see messes like we did in those pastoral, those ministries that I talked about, is because there was a lack of accountability, Leadership must have those people in their lives that are not going to be just cheerleaders. We need those people in our lives. But we also need the prophet of Nathan in our lives. Nathan, who went up to David and he looked at David and I could just see him putting his finger under David's nose and saying, you are the man. We need people like that too in our lives. And so church, what I see from this text is that leadership has influence. And we must always, you must always, I must always make sure that we never allow or put anything in the way of the mission. And what is our mission? To behold, enjoy, and pursue Jesus. That's why we breathe. Now, I want to close with something encouraging, right? Because this story of Eli and how it's presented is it all negative, and I'm trying to state it in the positive there on the, on the screen. Let me, let me encourage you with this. In life, Jesus, there is a better high priest than Eli, and his name is Jesus. There's a better pastor for your soul, and his name is Jesus. There's a better shepherd in your life And his name is Jesus. And if you're here, if you're listening, and you don't know who this Jesus is, and why he's the better priest, and why he's the better pastor, why he's the better shepherd, why he's the better leader, I'd love to share with you why. Because there is nobody like Jesus. And if you are a believer, I want to remind you, especially because there's some of you that have been hurt by leadership In the past. And there's potentially some of you that will be hurt by maybe my leadership. Or other pastoral leadership in the future. And I don't mean to minimize your hurt from the past. I don't ever mean to let myself off the hook or anybody else. But let me encourage you. That sinful men are sinful men. And you're going to be disappointed in men. Now, there's there's qualifications and there's things that you should expect totally agree with that but at the end of the day a man is a man but there is one man who is above all other men and his name is Jesus and Jesus will never disappoint you Jesus will never be a bad shepherd Jesus will always lead you by those still waters and restore your soul he's the good shepherd Psalm 23 And so I would encourage you, if you've had poor leadership in the past, or you've been hurt by the past, I don't don't minimize that. I know that it's real. Matter of fact, I, I, I know this, and I talk with people. It's a real thing. But I want to encourage you that there is one where you can find rest, and you can turn to, and his name is Jesus. So would you turn to him? Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you. As we close our time together, we thank you for this passage on leadership in pastoral influence, pastoral leadership, we would say today. And it's not an easy message for me because I look at this and I it's sobering. I'm sure it's sobering for the other three guys here, too. But yet, Lord, it's it's important. Because your glory beholding, enjoying and pursuing Jesus is at stake here. And so I pray that you would use even this message as accountability, that you would use this message to help us identify, to sniff out, to live by, to practice what it means to be a shepherd like Jesus, what it means to look for in a shepherd. And so, Lord, I pray that you would protect us from ever being a ministry or a people that does what is right in their own eyes because of leadership. So use this in our lives. Strengthen us by it.